human beings think of everything in terms of duration, path, and outcome. Where do I want to be? How long, how am I going to get there? How long is it going to take me to get there? Duration, path, and outcome. And your success really starts coming when you let go of the outcome. Today's conversation is sponsored by Seasons. Seasons, S-Z-N-S, is an NFT fractionalization and DAO platform on which anyone can create collections of NFTs for fractional ownership and collective governing as a DAO. Artists and curators can allow for democratic access to their NFTs, and collectors can begin to own high-value NFTs they could not otherwise afford. So I'm just curious to know a little bit more about your upbringing, your time in college, and at Harvard specifically. Uh, how did your background get you to where you are now? And how did you find yourself in a career in hostage negotiating? Yeah, I think probably my background mostly, and I grew up in an environment which was just figured out, pitch in. Whatever problem you're faced with, you know, just figure it out and keep working on it and just stay at it. I mean, yeah, what is it, that Matt Damon movie, The Martian, where he's like, did you ever think you were going to die? And he said, I just worked the problem, work the problem in front of you, just work it and keep working it. And then kind of see what happens. Now, it's really hard for a lot of people uh, because uh, I was listening to Andrew Huberman podcast. I'm a big fan of his stuff a few months back. And he was talking about human beings think of everything in terms of duration, path and outcome. Where do I want to be? How, long, how am I going to get there? How long is it going to take me to get there? Duration, path and outcome. And your success really starts coming when you let go of the outcome. Like, you know, I don't know where this is going. I'm just going to try to engage in a good process, which actually lets go of all those three things because you're not sure how where you're going to end up. You're not sure how long it's going to take. You're not sure exactly how you're going to get there. And then you always end up in better places. So I think, you know, my father was a blue collar guy. Uh, he put me to work and he gave me a list of stuff to do and he never told me how to get it done. He just said, get this stuff done. And I think that is really where I ended up how I in this, uh, this bizarre journey over the years. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's so interesting how you kind of approach things in a somewhat different way than a lot of conventional, you know, strategies for both negotiations, also future planning. Um, for instance, the a lot of people say to prioritize the outcome first and then figure out your plan. So I think it's definitely a good kind of counterpoint for the viewers to consider. And I um, went through your book and I found it really interesting and a really different approach than a lot of the previous strategies that I've heard. And so for all of our listeners out there who, you know, have no idea about your philosophies and different strategies, can you summarize the book specifically um, about mirroring and labeling um, emotions and why those work so well in negotiations in the FBI or in business? I guess to summarize it, it's just applied people smarts uh, is what it really boils down to. People smarts, another term for emotional intelligence. You know, we haven't had the term emotional intelligence around for all that long, um, but it's always been there. You know, there's always been a discussion of people smarts. Now, what are we applying it by? I mean, uh, really, neuroscience has really guided us in how the brain actually works over the last five to 10 years. And there's just inf good, hard data, hard science data out there now that psychology never really had access to. And as it turns out, the neuroscience is really backing up the approach to hostage negotiations, saying it worked not in hostage situations because it was a bad guy holding the, uh, somebody hostage. It worked because it works on people, period. 
And so then the mirroring and the labeling that you're talking about is just the application of these hostage negotiation skills, which are crisis intervention skills. People think more intensely in a crisis, but they don't think differently. You know, all the rules of how the brain works are all still there. They're just more intense. They're not different. So mirroring and labeling, labeling just calling out the dynamic of what's present in the moment at the time, whether it's a dynamic or an emotion. It's kind of crazy how effective that is because it works on a number of levels. First of all, you know, people's thoughts in their heads, I'm listening to Aaron Sorkin's masterclass now, you know, I got a masterclass out. I might as well listen to other people's masterclass, right? So, you know, uh, I'm listening to Aaron Sorkin's for a variety of reasons. And, and he talks about having to take notes and get stuff on note cards because he's got to sort, sort out the weather storm of thoughts in his head. Well, you know, yeah, that's what kind of everybody has that. And when you're mirroring and labeling, if you're just acting as a sounding board for somebody, it helps them sort out the weather storm of thoughts in their head. And then as you get good at being a sounding board, and then you understand that it lines up with neuroscience, somebody's upset, you say, ah, wow, you know, uh, you sound upset. And the mere recognition of that, neuroscience says, diffuses it. So mirroring and labeling are just originally crisis intervention skills that, as it turns out, applies to everything and are ridiculously effective. Great. Thanks so much. I think it's a wonderful kind of clarification for all the listeners. And then specifically, you talk a lot about getting to know, which for me at least was a really big difference and what a lot right. of um, you know, kind of think of as the end result. We see, yes, is this kind of the best case scenario. So can you talk a little bit about why we should go for no? Yeah, you know, yes is fraught with peril. Yes, at best, at its absolute best, is only aspiration. At its, at its best, which is why, you know, in the early days of the Black Swan Group when a book first came out six years ago, we used to say yes is nothing without how. Aspiration without a plan ain't going anywhere. You know, the, the phrase hope is not a strategy. Well, hope is an inadequate strategy. Hope alone is not a strategy. And we used to say yes is nothing without how. You know, without how your yes is not going anywhere. It's only an aspiration at best, at best. The reality of yes in most cases is that yes has been used to manipulate people, to walk them down a path. You know, the, what was once maybe, maybe, maybe the yes momentum was a good idea someday at some point in time. And if you have no sales skills or no persuasion skills at all, then maybe you started using the yes momentum or yesable proposition or getting to yes, and suddenly you achieve some success. So it's the gap in the gain analogy. You're, you're caught up in the fact that you made a big gain from zero and maybe you're closing 10% of your negotiations, 10% of your deals, 10% of your sales. And you're like, wow, I got a 10X by going for yes. And you're comparing that to zero. But in point of fact, if you can get out of yes, if you abandon yes entirely, your close rate gets much, much higher. Now, what causes that? This yes momentum is described as get people to say yes to the little things. And then they have to say yes to the big thing, you know, in order to be consistent. You know, it's a social consistency theory. Get them get several yes confirmations 
And actually, if you look at some of the instruction, each yes is referred to as a tie down. Well, who wants to be tied down? That's a violation of one of our fundamental needs as human beings for autonomy. People will die over their autonomy. I mean, they'll literally die over their autonomy. Somebody who thinks they're being forced into a deal that's actually good for them will choose to not agree because they feel they lost their autonomy. And that's what happens with this yes momentum. You, people are trying to tie you down so that you can't get out of it. And a point, the fact, you know, it's it's loosely traced back to Cialdini's social consistency, consistency theory. And there's a fine line because people tend to act in consistent ways. But words and behavior rarely match up. And so, yes, if you're looking for how somebody's going to act, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior, not past words. Yes is about words. And, you know, there's no shortage of phrases out there where people are acting inconsistently with their words. I remember hearing a long time ago, what you do shouts so loudly in my ears, I can't hear what you're saying. So the whole yes momentum thing is keyed to be consistent with words. And Cialdini himself actually did a study to see if words lined up with actions. I stumbled over a study recently, and the study showed the consistency theory didn't work. Well, what it really showed was words don't line up with actions. Actions line up with actions. So if you're relying on the yes word to get implementation action, you're asking for trouble. So then, then the crazy thing, the insane thing is, what happens with no? And we started experimenting with this, and it was a game-changing concept. Like, I have absolutely no hesitation whatsoever in saying that switching out your drive for yes, have you got a few minutes to talk, to little things like, no is and the, that question is is now a bad time to talk do you agree goes to do you disagree are you in favor of this goes to are you against this your success rate will immediately jump by no less than 23 percent. that ain't a bad that ain't a bad instantaneous jump definitely not i think it's so interesting how just reframing can really affect the outcome even though the kind of base of the question is the same and then looking at kind of on two sides one what influenced your um, like philosophy or your good thoughts on all of these that then manifested in your book and then on the other hand afterwards if there were any other teachings or um stories or uh, lessons that you learned that you wish you could then go back and add to your book the influences a lot of influences along the way um, I think really primarily, you know, to become a hostage negotiator, I was initially completely rejected by the woman who was in charge of the team. And then I, you know, sort of refused. I was, to me, there's always a way, there's always a solution. That was the way I grew up, figured out. You know, my son and I like to joke that um, one of the unofficial Voss family models is how hard could it be, which is almost the same as theoretically uh, Redneck's famous last words are, hey, watch this. So, you know, how hard can it be? It's along those lines, a little naive. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. But, uh, you know, she said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline, which I did. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that most of my life, a lot of my successes in life has been asking the right people what to do and then doing it. 
You know, there's a phrase, never take advice from somebody you wouldn't trade places with, never take directions from somebody who hasn't been where you're going. So I found those people and I asked them what I should do and did it, which shocked them. You know, both the, the biggest advantage I had getting into the FBI and then becoming a hostage negotiator, both of the people were shocked that they I followed their advice. Now, and that set me apart, like literally the woman that that put me on the negotiation team in New York, she said to me, I've literally told a thousand people to volunteer on a suicide hotline. And two of you did it. Now think about the competitive advantage that gives you if you ask the right person what to do. And how do you know if they're the right person? Would you trade places with them? She was in charge of the negotiation team. I would have traded places with her. Ultimately, I did. You know, the FBI agent, I would have traded places with him. Ultimately, I get in. So, you know, those, those were those were the key issues and the key influences. Now, now along the way, the suicide hotline was the first. You know, I was I was convinced that this stuff had to work in day to day life, and I started applying it. And then the people that that taught me when you know when I got to the hostage negotiation school, I was always already firmly grounded in crisis intervention. You know, and then Jim Camp's book in 2002, Start With No. And then, you know, that led me to collaborating in the 2004 timeframe with the people at the program on negotiation. You know, I, I realized I was, I've been kind of hard on them and never split the difference. And I was probably too hard on them because, you know, uh, they embraced me openly. They were ridiculously supportive. And they, you know, gave me a lot of validation and, and point of fact by saying like, hey, you're doing the same stuff we are. You know, you guys, you guys are using the same dynamics and ideas and methods that we are. You know, they hadn't called them out that specifically yet at that point in time. You know, but everybody there, Bob Manukin, um, Sheila Heen, Doug Stone, everybody I ran across, you know, they were on board with this emotional intelligence approach to negotiation. When I first got up there in 2004, you know, I met Roger Fisher, you know, the, the one of the co-authors of Getting to Yes. And I, I don't know that the words emotional intelligence are in Getting to Yes at all. And Roger Fisher was just dripping with emotional intelligence. I mean, like, it's, you know, he exuded it. He lived it. He breathed it. And he was a classic example. You know, all this really came from a, an astute understanding of emotional intelligence before the words were there, they needed to be fitted into, you know, an academic, um, intellectual, rigorous environment. And human beings aren't really academic and intellectual and rigorous. And I think a lot of the teachings of the original genius of all that got obscured by having to put it in a format that fit in an environment that wasn't really ready to clarify. So the, the, everything I learned from the people on a program on negotiation were, were huge boosts. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And, you know, what you're saying about, you know, learning from, you know, others and kind of, you know, listening to other people's advice, especially like people you look up to, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of great advice that you have in your book, Never Split the Difference, um, that like a lot of, you know, readers of the book and viewers um, or listeners of the podcast are kind of trying to, you know, take away. I want to jump in for just one second, because I want to put a real fine point on what you just said. Just because you look up to somebody doesn't mean you should take their advice. Like, 
Tal Roz is a co-author of Never Split the Difference. The other uncredited co-author is my son, Brandon. Now, Tal Roz is a genius business book writer. I would not take his advice on writing a greeting card or a poem or even a children's book. So I look up his ability. You look up to somebody, but do they have they been where you're going? You know, what makes you look up to them? You know, another guy I looked up to tremendously, uh, John Domenico Pico is a U.N. hostage negotiator that got all the hostages out of Lebanon in the mid 80s. Like, and, and I got to know John and, and became friends. Like Johnny's a brilliant, brilliant understanding of the Islamic world and uh, Iranians, uh, Shias and Sunnis. I mean, nobody's got more, had more insight into them than him and then negotiating in that environment. I would not take any business organizational advice from Johnny. Like I would listen to him about negotiations. But he didn't set up a business. You know, he was working for the U.N. So be really because you look up to somebody is not enough reason to listen to their advice. Have they been where you're going? Would you trade places with them in that format? That's a tough call because there are going to be a lot of people that you admire that give you very well-intentioned advice that they are not qualified to give you. They are dead wrong. They are speculating. They haven't, they haven't run that gauntlet themselves. And that's the right. real problem because you would admire them, but they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. No, I see that distinction is, you know, super important than just like people you look up to, but like more importantly, people who are in a position where, you know, you kind of want to be in the future. Um, so I guess like p- pivoting a bit away from your book and more towards the practical applications of negotiation strategies themselves. Um, have you found that like younger people, like maybe Gen Z, millennials or college students struggle more with negotiation? And if so, like how can they overcome their generational instincts? Um, and then also like secondary are there times that you think one should avoid negotiating? So generational instincts, like um, the top of the bell curve, it doesn't matter what, what generation you're from. I've seen no difference in the performance characteristics from uh, baby boomers to um, Gen X, Gen Z, millennials. Top of the bell curve, they're curious, they're ambitious, fearless. You know, they're resilient at least. You know, they're, they're not complaining about, you know, being victimized. They, they just want to learn. They want to get ahead. Um, the middle of the bell curve is where, you know, the stereotypes come in all the generations and there are differences. Now, the challenge on negotiations um, in the book, The Upward Spiral. Um, there's a, there was a great study and, you know, I'll quote studies where the data set might be just women or the data set might just be young women. And I will think, and I will tell you that this applies to humans. The data set may be females, but this applies to humans, period. So, you know, don't be distracted by the data set. The data set here happens to be teenage girls dealing with a trauma. And then they they basically ran a study as to how they dealt with it. Now, the first uh, set of teenage girls talked to their mothers on the phone. Talk to their mothers directly. As I recall, the progression is they talk to their mothers in person. They talk to their mothers on the phone. They texted their mothers. They didn't communicate with their mothers at all. The girls that texted their mothers 
had no more ability to cope with the trauma than the girls that didn't talk to anybody. Now that screams at me that there's a real lack of emotional intelligence resonance in texting as a general rule. So if you're if you're most comfortable in texting, you're not getting the emotional intelligence practice you need because emotional intelligence, the ability to be empathic is something that everyone is born with unless there's a fundamental problem with your wiring. If your chemistry is out of balance, you still got the ability to have emotional intelligence. And I realize that there are a lot of people that talk about that, that you know, quote on the spectrum where they, they seem to have less ability to perceive emotions. And there's a lot of discussion now as to what's behind that. Like I, I got a buddy of mine that runs, runs an investment firm out of Dallas and a couple of his, his um, programmers, he's got one guy that can do a Rubik's cube behind his back. And like, he could do like four or five, he can go from Rubik's cube to Rubik's cube behind his back. And, you know, and theoretically this guy is, is not that attuned to emotions. You know, what's going on there? Is there a wiring issue? Is it a chemistry issue? Is it just that in his, his hasn't gotten used to his brain focusing on emotions? I would contend that that person still has the ability to pick up emotions. But it is a perishable skill. And without some routine practice at it, the skill diminishes. And so if you're just texting, it's hurting your ability to pick up on emotional intelligence. Uh, you know, there's... There's a highly controversial framework out there, controversial, 738.55. 7% of the message coming across in words, 38 in tone and delivery, 55 in body language. Well, you know, those of us that communicate um, sort of the way I do, you know, which is verbally in person, we love the 738.55. Uh, I think it's an accurate distribution of the way the message comes across. Well, if you're texting, the 38 and 55 are gone and you're losing a message to interpret, to react to, to learn from. So principally texting is holding you back if that's how you're communicating. You might like it. You might feel comfort there. But getting out of your comfort zone is where the learning acceleration takes place anyway. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. I definitely see the 738.55 as being like, you know, something that's taken that doesn't really apply when, you know, texting is a primary form of communication. Um, I guess like kind of touching on something that you mentioned before, but how would you suggest would be like the best way, whether it be like in a hostage situation or in a business setting to deal with negotiation failures? Yeah, well, and then, then it depends upon what your definition of failure is. Uh, like for me in a hostage negotiation, if I keep the bad guy on the phone five minutes longer than he planned on, I've already succeeded. It may have been a success you know, hostage negotiators have a 93% success rate. 7% of those are going to go bad. The success might be diagnosing it as a, a situation that we're never going to get the guy out sooner rather than later and taking the appropriate action. So, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure the definition of failure, I, I, you know, I would diagnose it quite differently than most people. Not getting a deal might be a success. You know, in the business world, we say it's not a it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So the failure would be have been hung, hung into a negotiation that you were never going to get. And that was, 
that may be the biggest thing, uh, the biggest difference from hostage negotiation to business negotiation. Because I heard about this concept before I ever got into the private sector, that there would be people that would negotiate with you having no intention of making a deal. And there's all sorts of terms for euphemisms, the fool in the game, which is one that we use. You know, I'd heard about the rabbit. I thought the rabbit was a myth. You're only there to drive the price down on somebody else. You, they're they're going to bring you into the deal. They're going to let you pitch. They're going to let you compete. <clears throat> and you got no shot, none. And I thought that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. Because time is the most valuable commodity. And why would anybody with any sense intentionally waste their time? And it is huge. I mean, it is massive out there. And it's it's no less than 20% of the interaction. So if you didn't get the deal, did you fail? Not if you were never going to get the deal. Your failure was not in figuring out sooner that you weren't going to get the deal and then moving on. So the definition of failure and success, you know, what is your definition of failure and success? And not getting the deal is not a failure. Taking a long time to not get the deal is a failure. Right. Yeah. I think that that's a key distinction to make between like, you know, what really the definition of failure and success means and how that's different in kind of each situation. A lot of our podcast listeners and kind of the target audience are like recent graduates um, of undergraduate who are like looking for jobs. Um, and so something that, and, and you know, forgive me, I, and I keep interrupting. I know it's rude as heck. No, no worries. I, uh, I, I, Michael Wheeler is another guy I think the world of. One of the things I like about Michael's approach is you know, he's got a newsletter out there called The Jazz of Negotiation, which is really getting you out of duration, path, and outcome. And Because jazz, what's the path? Nobody knows. You know, where's the tune going? Nobody knows. Jump in and find out. So sorry for the interruption. <laughs> that crossed my schizophrenic brain while you were talking. No worries. Thank you for adding that in. Um, I guess, like, you know, something that we were wondering is, um, you know, your tips on kind of what works well in salary negotiation and kind of what would an example of successful salary negotiation look like? Salary is the price term in a negotiation. Look at it as a price term and put it in that context like any other price term and price is a term. And one of our rules involving price, price will break your deal, it won't make your deal. Your salary will pay your bills. It will not make your career. Focusing on the salary does not correlate strongly with building your career. Focusing on success terms builds your career. How do you do that? Good friend of mine who's a CEO of an international bank started out the same starting place I did, which is Mount Pleasant, Iowa, town of 7,000 people, not a metropolitan area, went to a smaller school than I did, does not have family connections. You know, I, I never had Harvard behind my name until after I left the FBI. M myself and my friend started basically utterly with no resume or no credentials. He's the CEO of an international bank. In every one of his jobs he's ever been in, and in every one of his annual performance evaluations, he asks this question, how can I be guaranteed to be involved in projects that are critical to the strategic future of this organization? 
That is a game changing question for so many reasons. Now, first of all, you got to mean it. You got to be willing to play in the Super Bowl. You got to want to be in the Super Bowl. This is not for the faint hearted. This is for people that want to be in the Super Bowl. Now, what happens when you ask that question? Person on the other side, suddenly, instead of you looking at as being a selfish person, I want a higher salary, makes you selfish. You immediately go from being selfish to being a team player. At least subconsciously, they say, this person wants to make my life better. This person wants to help me make more money. This person wants to play in a big game. This person is fearless. This is somebody I want to work with. This is somebody I want to get ahead with. Now, first of all, this doesn't mean that you're going to get into those strategic projects right away. But it signals to the CEO that you want his attention and you want the spotlight. Everybody begins to look at you for the possibilities by asking that simple question. Now, here, what are the caveats? Caveats are my friend who's hugely successful has gotten fired. He didn't get fired. He got, you know, he got shoved out. And corporations, they figure a way to shove you out so you quit for a whole variety of reasons. Biggest are if you're fired, they owe you a lot more benefits than they owe you if you quit. That's why most companies want you to quit. So, you know, they just put you in a horrible position and you leave. That's happened to them. There is no guarantee of success. There's just best chance of success. There's best chance of acceleration. This does not inoculate you from failure. What this does is it positions you for success better than anything else does. And it changes how they're going to see you and the opportunities that you're going to get as you go along the way. Now, I gave, uh, I was hired recently. I did a keynote and a training session for a sales company where the CEO was there and all of his top salespeople were there. And somebody asked me that salary question in front of him. And they, how do we get this guy to pay us more? And they was like, you could have heard a pin drop. Like they were wondering what the heck I was going to say. And I repeated that question to everybody in front of him. And before, when I got done laying it out, before any of them had a chance to respond, the CEO said, I wish everybody here would ask me that question. The boss wants you asking that question. That's a question to ask. But I guess, how do you strike a balance between being a team player and prioritizing your chance to pitch in and kind of make the company better while still putting yourself first. Cause you know, like, I think like you said, like salary does pay your bills and kind of help you get by. So how do you find that balance? Well, you, you immediately begin to stand out. First of all, you know, how do you stand out versus how do you put yourself first? Another great approach. If, if you get the backbone for it is run the trouble run to new territory, run, run to new ground. Most of your colleagues aren't going to have uh, the backbone or the stomach for that. They, you know, they're not going to be willing to go into that. Another, another interesting thing that I learned, you know, my days in the FBI, what I loved about plowing new, new ground or even going against what the conventional wisdom was, really hard for people to tell you you're wrong. Because if you're going someplace where there haven't been any rules, you know, the naysayers can't say, hey, you're breaking the rules. You know, go where there aren't any rules. And I, I had a colleague of mine that I admired greatly uh, about midway through my time in New York point that out to me and said, yeah, let, put me in the new programs where nobody's been before because ain't nobody going to be able to tell you wrong. 
the second guessers, the armchair quarterbacks, all the people that want to criticize you because they don't like the way you're doing it. Well, there's no standards that, that that are out there for you to be held to. So there's a there's a tremendous amount more freedom there. But it's scary out there too. You got to want to go after that kind of stuff, and that's and running to trouble does that for you because the vast majority of people are scared to run to trouble. I found out on a regular basis, run to trouble, running to trouble is a great accelerator. You know, run after problems because most people aren't going to have the courage to go go in that direction anyway. And the boss wants help. That's where the boss wants help. But, you know, the boss, the boss got two problems. You know, how, how's the grass growing over here where we're cultivating it and taking it our time? And we want the grass to grow really greenly, but there's not a lot of instantaneous feedback. And over here on the other side, the house is burning down. You know, I want people to help me grow the grass, but, you know, this house is burning down over here. So that's another way to distinguish yourself and to, to be able to put yourself forward in a way where, you know, maybe you're a little bit worried about getting lost in the crowd. But you don't, you don't get lost in a crowd by emphasizing yourself as a team player. It seems very counterintuitive. You're afraid that you're not highlighting yourself that way. But few people are really great team players that it stands out in a really impressive and impactful way with the people that you work for. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And like you said, counterintuitive, you know, you would think that focusing on yourself or like, you know, prioritizing yourself would make you stand out. But I definitely see the why positioning yourself as a team player might actually work better. I guess like switching gears a little bit, you talk a lot about Black Swans and you even named your company after it. So could you briefly discuss like what a Black Swan is and why it's such a game changer in negotiations? Yeah, the Black Swans are little pieces of information that make all the difference in the world. I mean, it's um, derived from uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's 2007 book, The Black Swan, which is the impact of the highly improbable. And, you know, I, I read Taleb's stuff. Um, he's an interesting thinker. He has a, a very definite tone to his writing. I got pages of Taleb's stuff where I'm highlighting every other line. And I got other pages where I'm like, oh, God, you drive me crazy. I can't stand, stand where you put this. But, uh, you know, originally got the idea from him. And then I realized that that was everything. You know, the impact of the highly improbable, little things that make all the difference in the world, the hidden things that are always there. And they're always there. Like, no matter how much you know, no matter how smart you are, there's always stuff that you're, you're not going to know, no matter how smart you are. And this is, this is a thing that I've seen people can grasp intellectually immediately and not accept it emotionally. Like, we live in an asymmetric world. You know, I, I could walk you guys, I could walk everybody at Harvard, and no matter how smart you are. I, you'd have trouble finding somebody to disagree and back it up that we don't live in an asymmetric world, which is we all are operating on imperfect information at all times. We're operating on imperfect information. Well, if your information is imperfect, then by definition, your project, projected outcomes are flawed. It just follows. You know, logic doesn't apply to a lot, but it sure applies to that. So if your outcomes, your projected outcomes are flawed, then how do you adapt to that? Start from the very beginning looking for the things that you don't know, the surprises, because they are there. 
and seasoned business people. I know what's going on. You know, it is what it is. And I asked those people, when did you ever engage in a negotiation when you weren't holding something back? And, and, by, and if you're holding back, by definition, it's important. Your budget, your timing, your pressures, what matters to you. Is there ever a time when you're not holding something back? Well, of course we are. So is the other side. And since you're holding back stuff that's important, so were they. Which then begins to add to this idea that your projected outcomes are flawed. You know, your goal-oriented focus. You know, start with the end in mind. Well, the end in mind is highly flawed. And that's what gets you into this dilemma of duration, path, and outcome, or start with the objective in mind, or start with the end in mind. It's okay to start with the end in mind if you are able to accept that your projections are flawed. Now you start looking for the little stuff. Now you start making a difference. Thank you so much. That's so interesting. And I think definitely a good follow-up to kind of one of the first questions. And then our podcast focuses a lot on startups and venture capital as a whole. And really in listening today, so much of your philosophy and your advice aligns with that of kind of conventional entrepreneurial wisdom or a lot of the knowledge out there. If, for instance, failing fast or just figure it out, kind of your duration path outcome, being scrappy um, and going against conventional wisdom. In the business context, have you found this to be the case? And if so, how have you kind of sought involvement with the startup space if it is a good and direct application of your ideas? It is the case sometimes, you know, people, people get into routines and routines have a tendency to start to set in in your mid-20s. And the neuroscience backs this up and the whole uh, concept of how well you learn, how easily you learn neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity begins to start to go dormant in your mid-20s. Now, the key word here is dormant, not loss which means if you're aware that your ability to learn and your neuroplasticity simply goes dormant in your mid-20s, you need to start taking actual action steps to wake it back up or to keep it awake, depending upon where you are. And a lot of it has to do with comfort and failure and how afraid you are of failure and whether or not it's a learning accelerator or your ability to adapt. And the problem also is from about 20 to 24, 25, you start picking up some success. And you start developing some success habits and some success patterns. And the more you rely on these patterns and habits, the more your ability to learn and your neuroplasticity goes away. So in, in you know, all the advice from the people that are investing in Silicon Valley is really designed to try to keep neuroplasticity alive. Don't be afraid to fail. Fail fast. You know, adapt, learn. I mean, this whole emphasis is on continuing to learn because what happens with startups and founders is let's say you're brilliant, you're in your early 20s, you're in your mid 20s, you come on across with a great idea, but your business is going to grow and evolve if you get that funding. And the set of skills that got you in the position to get the funding are going to change very rapidly into a whole different set of skills. Can you adapt? Can you continue to learn? Very hard to do if what you're being asked is quite different than what you were being asked in order to get you to the position that you're in. The, the old phrase, what got you here won't get you there. This is a real dilemma for people that are investing in startups 
because the skill sets are going to change. And are you coachable? Are you going to keep your neuroplasticity alive? Are you going to be so set in your previous patterns would, that brought you great success? Therefore, you're going to want to stick to them that you can't adapt and they got to get you out of the way. And this is one thing that I've learned dramatically in a black swan group, because there was a point in time when I was in there by myself. And then shortly there were three of us and they were both family members. And now we're rocking and rolling with 18 people. And the stuff that I got to do now is vastly different from the stuff that I stuff had that I had to do back then or when we were half the size of what we are now. So the challenge is of me to change my game and be a different person because the organization is asking different things of me as being the CEO. Um, now, I'm delighted to learn and I love to continue to learn and to break old habits. And it is a lot harder for me at this point in time because I got to take the extra effort to do it. So I think that was kind of a rambling answer. Hopefully I, I tapped on some of the the questions that you were asking me in the beginning with the intention of what, what the question was. Absolutely. I think definitely a lot to learn there, both in the startup, um, large businesses, and then on a personal level too, of always being a lifelong learner. And then staying within the kind of startup realm, um, are there any kind of ways that you see startups use your negotiation tactics specifically within that relationship, as you mentioned with um, VCs? And um, especially kind of as the power dynamic right now with the market shifts more towards um, VCs. Our tool of calibrated questions, which are mostly what and how questions. Or what question is principally designed to uncover obstacles and problems? How questions are principally designed to create implementation, design implementation. In the power dynamic, you know, everybody wants to be successful. And are you a team player? Are you collaborative? Are you coachable? And how do you want to solve this problem? How are you worried about me getting in the way if you fund my company? What do you want me to learn? What and how questions are really asking the legitimate what and how questions that both sides need to have answered in order to have a great, successful collaboration? And I've seen in a lot of cases, if people are really willing to ask the hard what and how questions to uncover the barriers to success and then design the path to success. And I've seen entrepreneurs that were looking for funding ask these questions and have them be game-changing game moments in the interactions. Right, yeah. So many of your you know, negotiation like tactics are so applicable to the startup world. Um, but kind of switching back to hostage negotiations, you know, there's a fine line between effective persuasion and manipulation in negotiations. Um, and like, you know, how would you draw that line? And do you think it even matters if we do draw that line? Or like, do you think it matters only in certain cases, like, you know, maybe in a courtroom or in a conference room, but maybe not so much like when saving a hostage? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, manipulation um, and even persuasion, I, I don't believe in mani manipulation. A lot of it is where you where are you coming from? The black swan method skills, the nine skills, I mean, they're just like empathy. They're skills, period. Now, whether they're used for good or for evil depends upon whose hands are in and where they're trying to take somebody. You know, a scalpel in one person's hand saves a life and another person's hands, it's a murder weapon. First of all, you sort of divorce yourself from are the skills inherently evil or are what they're being used for good or bad? Now, persuasion 
tends to have a shorter shelf life. And we talk more in terms of influence. Like if I persuade you that something is the case, you know, I'm probably going to talk to you a lot to keep you persuaded, to keep you in that mindset. Whereas if I get trust-based influence, then our relationship is, is more durable and lower maintenance. If you trust me, if you believe in me, if I'm not hiding anything from you, if I have no uh, motives that you should be afraid of, am I trying to, in hostage negotiation, I'm trying to say to bad guys like, I don't got to hide that. I'm not trying to talk him into going to jail. My first priority is keep him alive. I'm trying, I'm trying to save his life. If you let me, you know, my first diagnosis is this guy going to let me save his life. I'm, I'm not trying to manipulate. I'm, I'm leery of the term manipulation. I'm even leery of the term persuasion because I'm looking for a long-term trust-based relationship. I recently had a conversation uh, with a guy who's still on board with the FBI. There's a whole interrogation methodology out there called eliciting information. There are a lot of people in law enforcement that are in love with it, and we are uh, against it. Because in this eliciting information mindset, you want to get somebody into short-term thinking. Why? Because your long-term goals for them do not match up with their long-term goals. And I never want anybody to be afraid of what my long-term objective is. My long-term objective is I don't got to hide anything. I want to have a long-term relationship. I want it to be productive for as long as you want it to be productive. So I, I draw some real lines between persuasion and influence. And we go for influence versus persuasion. It makes perfect sense. I mean, when you truly care about someone and what happens to them in the grand scheme of things, you definitely aren't trying to manipulate them in the moment. So completely understand. Moving on from that, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you really know. What are the biggest unanswered questions or gaps in negotiation logic and strategies that keep you up at night and that you're essentially paving the pathway on for future negotiators? Yeah, well, this stuff ain't keeping me up at night because I'm having so much fun with it. I mean, this is really a lot of fun. And, you know, when you're enjoying it, when it's a lot of fun, you sleep pretty good. Like when I was a hostage negotiator, I felt like it was a privilege. I never had trouble sleeping, even, even, even when stuff went bad or I was worried about stuff going bad. You know, so it's kind of the attitude, the, uh, the grat gratitude. You know, I was grateful to be there. I'm grateful to be doing this now. Now, are, are we still learning? Uh, excited about the stuff that we're still learning. I mean, we're talking about stuff in a black swan method now. We got a great grasp on that we were really fumbling around with a year ago. And we expect that to continue to be the case. I mean, we're continuing to break ground and breaking ground and emotional intelligence is probably never going to go away. I mean, and then applying it productively so that everybody's better off. And in point of fact, everybody is better off. I'm, I'm in a, I can't remember which airport I was in the other day because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to travel a lot. I'm privileged to travel. So I lose track of which airport I'm in. But this lady, and I'm sitting in a restaurant. This lady comes walking up to me and she says, hey, I read your book. And I'm enjoying life so much more now. It's changed my perspective. And I'm making more money simultaneously. But if you're enjoying life more, you're not accumulating enemies. You're not beating people. You're winning with people. And that, that's an awful lot of fun. So still learning. Still got a lot to learn about all of us. But uh, I sleep pretty well. <laughs> 
true. Fair enough. All right. Well, this is a fun question we like to ask all of our guests just to, to end on a light note here. What's your hottest take or most controversial opinion? Now, it doesn't have to be anything related to what we've talked about. And to be honest, we have fully had conversations about pineapple on pizza. So what do you got for us, Chris? <laughs> controversial opinion. Like there, there are a lot of people now that are seeking fairness for whatever demographic that they're in. And that's a worthy cause and a dead end. So what's that about? If your journey, there is no path to success where the person that followed that path said, I got here by seeking fairness at every step of the way. So you're going to get hurt. Now, are you going to live in that pain? Uh, a thinker that I think a lot of, Craig Rochelle, it's actually a Protestant minister, says being hurt is inevitable. Living hurt is a choice. There is no path to success licking your wounds, feeling victimized, focusing on how you've been victimized. Now, you're going to get victimized and you're going to get crushed. I've, I've been victimized. I've been crushed. I've been kicked in the gut. I expect it to happen again. So to talk about being resilient or not being a victim doesn't mean that I'm saying it ain't going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. And you're gonna you're gonna have moments where you're gonna curl up in a fetal position and not gonna want to get up off the floor, and not feel like ever getting off the floor. And you gotta get up. You're only gonna find success when you get back up. So get back up. And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to find us online at HarvardVentures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, please email us at hello at harvardventures.org. Follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures or on Twitter at the same. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.